I could have to, if he starts screaming bloody murder, I'll have to go run out after him, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Let me get a binky in this mouth and see see how that goes. You want the binky? You don't want the binky. No? Doesn't want the binky. Doesn't want the binky. Gus almost always wants the binky. Okay, the binky's in. The binky's in. All right, let's do it. See how this goes. week in medicine i'm stephen jenkins and i'm austin rupp hello <laughs> great who else do we have with us today uh today uh today's a special a baby episode i i am on baby duty right now so i got Allie here with me uh currently uh working on a binky so hopefully it stays that way and then and you're on uh you're on baby duty too right Yep, I am on baby duty first day of uh, back to clinic for Kirsten. So super proud and excited about that. Well, excited is not the right word, but uh, you know, good for her for going back. Um, yeah. But yeah, I'm on baby duty day one. He's napping also with a binky. Um, we'll see how long that lasts. Yeah, things could get exciting today. Hopefully lots of baby babble in the background. We'll see. Uh, well, anyway, I think, yeah, we could kind of jump right in, I guess. So um, t- the first papers that I wanted to talk about today are about uh, semaglutide for weight loss. And this is not normally a topic that I would be super interested in, but I just noticed over the last month that there were three big trials published for semaglutide and weight loss. Um, you know, the first one I noticed was in the New England Journal, then there was one uh, in the JAMA, and then there was one in the Lancet, and I thought, okay, well, if there's if there's three big trials coming out looking at kind of similar questions, it's probably worth reviewing, and and so, you know, that got me thinking more about like, well, what's already out there, and since you know we're hospitalists, we don't really you know prescribe these medications, and you know I might include obesity on my problem list for the patient when they're in the hospital, but I usually don't. It seems like some people throw that in there maybe that increases the case mix index I don't know <laughs> I only throw it in with my favorite phrase which is morbid obesity and the cardiopulmonary manifestations of such when they're like admitted for you know hypoxia and volume overload etc cetera, etc cetera. so I don't always include it sometimes I do but it is very pertinent to our patients a lot of the times so. oh absolutely right like this is a definitely an epidemic in America and and, uh, you know, I think we all hope for like an excellent treatment that will come out, right? And so looking at the stuff that's already out there, you know, there's the famous fentermine, which is a mm-hmm. stimulant. And that one's apparently only approved for the first, you can use it for three months, and then you're supposed to stop. And that's the one that was prescribed with fenfluramine as fenfen back in the day. Um, and, you know, and that one, you know, resulted in a lot of class action lawsuits found to cause cardiac valvulopathy and pulmonary hypertension. So uh, we, we don't do that one anymore, but fentermine by itself is still available. And then there's also a drug fentermine plus topiramate called Qsimia. And I remember when that one came out, but then it's like, I never see patients actually on it, but apparently it resulted in 10 to 12% body weight loss, which is like pretty good for a weight loss pill. Um, 
And then there was another one that came out called Lorcaserin or Belvique. And I have seen patients on this one, but when I looked this one up, it's apparently been discontinued by the manufacturer. So kind of a moot point, we're not using that one anymore. Uh, and then one that I hadn't heard of is Bupropion plus Naltrexone, hmm. also called Contrave. That one results in five to 6% body weight loss. And it looked like for most of these drugs, the goal is like 5% body weight loss. I think that's probably how you get FDA approval. And so that one kind of just barely crosses the line there. Um, but that one was actually, you know, reasonable price was 168 a month on GoodRx. Uh, Qsimia was 191 a month. I mean, that's still a lot of money, but a lot of the drugs we discussed are much more than that, including the next one I was going to mention, which is liraglutide. So this one was originally developed for treatment of diabetes. It's a GLP-1 agonist, uh, <laughs> got baby sneezing <laughs> over here. So it's a GLP-1 uh, receptor agonist. Um, and in the trials, well, bless you. Gesundheit. <laughs> she is a sneezer. Maybe uh, it would be really sad if we found out she was allergic to like all of our pets. We got, you know, a lot of potential culprits in the house. But she just have to work for it. Right? <laughs> yeah. You'll get used to it, baby. Um, but anyway, the liraglutide, you know, in the trials for diabetes, they noticed that patients did lose weight. So they went ahead and did, you know, trials specifically looking at weight loss, even in patients without diabetes. And the dose is higher for that. And that one was associated with 6 to 8% body weight loss. Um, common side effects are nausea, diarrhea, vomiting, um, can cause pancreatitis. And then they found, too, that it caused medullary thyroid carcinoma in rats which has not been you know, seen in humans, but that makes it so this drug is contraindicated if the patient has a family history of medullary thyroid carcinoma or multiple endocrine neoplasia type two, which I forgot about, but is, you know, it's on step one, so. Test fodder. <laughs> yeah, it's good for that. But uh, in any case, um, that one is quite expensive. So if you're using it for, for weight loss purposes, it's like $1,400 a month. So obviously that one, is a no-go if you don't have insurance, unless you're just extremely you know, independently wealthy or something. So that, that's what led though to the, uh, the this, this papers that we're gonna talk about. There's another GLP-1 receptor agonist called uh, semaglutide that was approved for diabetes. And there's two different versions of that. There's an oral version called Ribcelsis, uh, and that one's about $800 a month. And there's an injection called Ozempic, that's about 850 a month. And so those ones are already approved, um, but in a previous phase two study of daily injections of semaglutide, 0.4 milligrams a day, they noticed that patients lost 14% of their body weight, which was a lot. And so that, that led to these trials that we're gonna talk about today. But instead of doing daily injections, they, they wanted to look at weekly doses uh, of 2.4 milligrams once a week. So we'll kind of just breeze through these. Um, but the first trial is called the step one trial. They have very nice names, step one, step two, step three. I, it looks like they're going up to like step seven, step eight potentially, uh, but these are the first three. So step one trial was published uh, back in February in the New England Journal. And then it came out this last week, March 18th in print. Um, all of these trials are designed and sponsored by a Novo Nordisk just to Put that disclaimer up front. <laughs> we don't like Novo Nordisk. 
Nothing against them personally, just obviously. Oh, okay. Know. Well, someone's got to pay for these trials. So whatever. Yeah, fair enough. Fair so enough. Um, the, uh, the patients in this first trial, so you had to have a BMI over 30 or a BMI over 27 plus a weight-related condition like hypertension, dyslipidemia, sleep apnea, et cetera. In this first trial, they excluded patients that had diabetes, and they also excluded patients with a history of recent pancreatitis or chronic pancreatitis. Uh, the, uh, the breakdown of the patients, they were 74% female, 75% um, white, a mean age of 46, uh, a mean BMI of 37.9. And this trial was pretty good size. They had 1,961 adults, 1,306 got semaglutide, 655 got placebo. And so this was a 68-week trial of once-weekly semaglutide versus placebo. And the primary outcome they were looking at was percentage change in body weight and weight reduction of at least 5%. Uh, so they also encouraged the patients um, with, with uh, counseling sessions every four weeks to adhere to a reduced calorie diet with a goal of 500 calories per day deficit and then also 150 minutes per week of physical activity, which I think are pretty reasonable recommendations. So the results, uh, the average weight loss uh, was 14.9% body weight. So pretty, pretty good results versus 2.4% in the placebo. So you don't really need statistics to see that that was good. Um, interestingly, so 86% of them lost more than 5%, 70% lost more than 10%, 50% lost more than 15%, and 33% lost more than 20%. And the average weight loss was 15 kilograms, you know, so that's over 30 pounds. It's pretty, pretty, uh, pretty good. The average waist circumference change was 13.5 centimeters in semaglutide versus four in the placebo. And the average BMI uh, decrease was 5.5 points. So overall, pretty positive study. Um, most common side effects were nausea, diarrhea, vomiting, constipation. That's pretty much a class effect, I think, with these GLP-1 uh, receptor agonists. And then there was some um, cholelithiasis, 2.6% uh, in the semaglutide versus 1.2% in the placebo, um, and very mild acute pancreatitis in three people on semaglutide. So overall, not a big problem. So, so I think you know that one, was in patients without diabetes. And you know that's a lot of our population. We have a lot of obese patients that don't have diabetes yet. And so this is a, a, you know, a, a drug that could potentially benefit them. So the step two trial was published in the Lancet on March 2nd. Um, and this one was a little bit different in that it included patients who had diabetes. You had to have a diagnosis of diabetes for at least 180 days. Uh, with an A1C of between 7 and 10%. Um, and they excluded patients um, who were on insulin and patients with uncontrolled diabetic retinopathy. Uh, the, the makeup of this patient population was a little different. It was 50% female, 62% white, 26% Asian. The average age was 55, average BMI was 35.7, and their average A1C was 8.1%. Um, they had 1,210 patients total. They randomized 404 to semaglutide 2.4 milligrams, 403 to semaglutide 1 milligram, and 403 to placebo. And again, this was a 68-week trial, like the last one, and it had the same primary outcome. So in this trial, they had a mean weight change of 9.6% with the 2.4 milligram dose. 
uh, versus 3.4 with the placebo, and the one point or the one milligram dose uh, resulted in seven percent body weight. So you, you definitely get more bang for your buck if you go on the higher dose. Um, and they had similar results as, you know, 70% of patients lost 5% of their body weight, 46% lost 10%, and 25.8% uh, lost 15% or more. Also, they did have excellent, you know, reductions in A1C, where the, the average A1C came down to uh, less than 6.5%. There were more hypoglycemic events in the semaglutide arm compared to placebo, um, and only one episode of pancreatitis in semaglutide, one in placebo. So, you know, overall, also a positive trial, not surprising since we've studied semaglutide and diabetes before, but in the diabetic obese population, this, this is a good option for weight loss. Um, not quite as much uh, weight loss as you saw in the, in the other trial, but still, you know, 10% um, average body weight loss was pretty good in my opinion. I finally got the baby to sleep. Nope, now she's awake again. Don't look at me like that. All right, step three was published February 24th in JAMA. Um, and this one uh, was different in that, it, so it had the same BMI cutoffs, but um, the thing that was different about this one, that also excluded diabetes. Um, the, the big difference in this trial was that they also included, for the first eight weeks, the patients were on a very low calorie diet of like a thousand calories a day and they provided this, this diet to the patients. It was like shakes, uh, pro, you know, protein bars, and, and then these portion controlled meals provided by a company called Nutrisystem. And so they did that for the first eight weeks to kind of jumpstart things before they started the semaglutide. Uh, and then after that, they had them do still a restricted diet of 1,200 to 1,800 calories a day, depending on what their, their weight was going in. They also prescribed them 100 minutes of exercise a week at the beginning and then had them increase that to 200 minutes a week. And they had intense, intensive behavioral therapy sessions, 30 different sessions. So like they were pretty aggressive on like kind of the lifestyle stuff in this trial. Um, and then they had the same, you know, primary outcome goal. So in this trial, it was a smaller trial. They had 611 participants, 407 to semaglutide, 204 to placebo. The average weight change was 16% with semaglutide versus 5.7% with placebo. So you can tell that with those intensive lifestyle, you know, modifications, the placebo people did pretty well. You know, they, they shed almost 6% of their body weight just from those interventions. Um, but with the semaglutide, they got to 16%. So um, this one did have a little bit more gallbladder disease in it, 4.9% in semaglutide versus 1.5% in the placebo. Uh, and then there were three patients in the semaglutide arm that, that were diagnosed with a cancer versus one in placebo, but none of the cancers were like endocrine related. I think there was a papillary thyroid carcinoma, but not a medullary, and there was no pancreatic cancer or pancreatitis. So I think in this trial, it seems like you don't actually get that much extra by doing the intensive weight loss stuff, you know, lifestyle changes compared to the first trial where you know, they also had 15% body weight loss just with semaglutide and not doing the eight weeks of, you know, hardcore calorie restriction. So I don't know if you really need to do that, but I think still something to consider for every patient who's trying to lose weight. So anyway, that was a lot of information, but it seems like semaglutide is probably one of the best drugs we have for obesity. And I hope this is something that 
you know, if guidelines recommend and it's something that insurance will cover once a week shot could be pretty awesome for the general population. Yeah. Amen, dude. <laughs> I think, um, you know, my, my sort of cursory takeaways were, yeah, that uh, semaglutide does a great job of weight loss and that uh, these intensive behavioral modifications are potentially not necessary, albeit still helpful. I think, like you mentioned, you know, we are in an obesity epidemic and we're not really talking about folks, you know, with BMIs 25 to 30. This is more upper 30s, you know, average BMIs were high 30s, I think, in all three, and so, or mid to high 30s in all three trials. So these are folks that, without intervention, are going to have cardiovascular issues and, and, you know, mobility issues and end up um, with a large burden of care in the future. So I really think that it's important to try and intervene on these folks like these trials are doing. You know, the alternative is surgery, which we see a fair number of complications from. I mean, not, not acute complications, but long-term, uh, you know, malabsorption and surgical issues, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I think if we can try to avoid surgeries and unnecessary procedures and, you know, do medical interventions that I'm all for that. Um, so yeah, not a lot of critiques really on these trials. Uh, the side effect profiles were great, like you said, and very promising in my opinion. So I would love to see more folks on semaglutide also. The only other thing I sort of wondered about was like a probable mechanism. You know, I didn't do a deep dive on GLP-1 uh, agonists, but it's you know, sort of just like inhibits the appetite, but we don't really understand totally how that works. So that's a little um, strange to me, but they clearly do work. <laughs> yeah, I we don't know how any of them work. You know, it's like give them naltrexone um, to try and mess with their brains to keep them from eating. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but you know, it you seems know. like most of the drugs that are out there, it's like it was developed for something else, and then we realized that it like affected people's appetites, right? Like stimulants do, and Topamax does, and all of these drugs. And so, yeah, I mean, they have some postulated theories in, in the papers that go through, but you know, I didn't really dive into that too much. So, I, I, I'm going to try to prescribe one of these for a patient in the hospital and see what the pharmacists do. Nice, yeah, report back. I think <laughs> the only other worry I have is, you know, like, way down the line sort of side effects. I mean, t you know, the TZDs, people were high on them and now they, you know, cause cardiovascular disease and heart failure or whatever. So, um, you know, stay tuned, but promising and we hope to see more was my, were my takeaways. Yeah. I mean, you could see that if, if you were to take this to like a population level and you had millions of people on them, there could be, you know, side effects or problems that we don't know about that could pop up or these things that you worry about, like the medullary carcinoma of the thyroid, like that, maybe that would pop up more if you put a lot of patients on these drugs. So something to definitely pay attention to in the future. So, right. uh, my wife now relieved me of the baby. One moment. Now my, now my baby's awake, so let me go put his pacifier in. I'll be right back. So 
I mean, <laughs> he's going to keep spitting it out. Um, but, you know, if I get to good stopping points, either I'll pick him up and bring him in and then he'll be fine. But anyway, we'll work through it. So, um, great. Yeah, semaglutide. So I wanted to talk about a smattering of random papers this week, uh, the first of which was titled Derivation and Validation of a Four-Level four Clinical Pretest Probability Score for Suspected Pulmonary Embolism to Safely Decrease Imaging Testing. Whew. Um, it was by Roy and colleagues and was published in the JAMA Cardiology Journal, first online on 3-3-2020. This trial attempted to provide clarity to the age-old question of how can we diagnose PEs in emergency departments. So they start this paper by stating, diagnosing pulmonary embolism remains a clinical challenge, which I think is an understatement. Um, what's your PE algorithm, Stephen? <laughs> Mine is, if I think about a PE, I'm probably going to order a CTPA. <laughs> Oh man, no! I you you got to start with the well score, man. No, no, I, I right. think you know this. Yeah, this is a huge problem, and I think that's the thing is like everyone. As soon as you mention it, then everyone starts worrying about it, and and then all you know you're not going to feel good about it till you order the CT scan, right? And so there's there's way too many CT scans ordered. So how can we reduce that? Is kind of I think the goal of of this paper. Exactly. You hit the nail on the head. Once you've thought about this life-threatening diagnosis, you can't get it out of your heads or your head, but we need to try and move past that and reduce unnecessary imaging because the increase in imaging for the diagnosis of CTPA has not led to improved outcomes is another key point. We order more CTPAs and we probably treat more incidentally found PEs, you know, quote unquote, incidentally found PEs, but that has not improved outcomes and it has probably led to increased bleeding and so on and so forth. So we need to be able to rule out this life-threatening diagnosis in a systematic and effective way whilst reducing imaging was sort of the hypothesis and point of this paper. So they talk about how several strategies have attempted to curb the overutilization of imaging and the likely overdiagnosis of PE. The most notable of these strategies are, I'm just going to call them based on either the, the score or the, the paper, um, the PERC method, um, which is basically just clinical gestalt alone. I mean, you use, you know, sort of a, a score and then you you know, if they're low risk, no further testing. And so the authors state that there's been follow-up data, data that's, that shows that PERC, the PERC rule may not be reliable. The next strategy is called adjust PE, which uses age-adjusted D-dimer, but not, might not reduce imaging overall. And then there's the years and the pegged trials, which adjust the D-dimer to pretest probability, but have not been assessed in populations with higher prevalence of PE, and therefore may have higher uh, failure rates, was the critiques that these authors leveled against previous um, strategies. So what they've tried to do is combine all four of those strategies into something they call the four-level pulmonary embolism clinical probability, or four PEPs uh, score. So you know, we could go on and on about pretest probability and how it's likely underutilized and should be a part of every decision, you know, regarding testing. But the fact is that we don't really often in clinical practice probably do not utilize, you know, Bayesian statistics and pretest probabilities and likelihood ratios enough. But these guys are, are attempting to, to mitigate that with giving you a score and helping you determine the pretest probability in order to uh, inform your testing. 
So they came up with four levels of clinical pretest probability, um, very low, low, moderate, and high, and they have a clinical algorithm based on the clinical pretest probability, which I'll refer to as CPP henceforth. So if you have a low, very low CPP, PE, PE is ruled out on clinical criteria alone. If you have a low CPP, PE is excluded with a D-dimer of less than one. With a moderate CPP, PE is excluded with a D-dimer less than 0.5 or less than the age-adjusted D-dimer. And if you have a high clinical pretest probability, you can't rule out a PE and you should get imaging. So um, they talked a lot about how this was derived. You know, again, they used a Bayesian approach. They used a 2%. 2 percent is the safety threshold for PE and then likelihood ratios to set the upper limits of prevalence within each group. Um, and I don't have those written down. So <laughs> anyway, they then performed a retrospective analysis or analyses of five studies that had collected previous prospective data on patients with suspected PE. Um, they split them into various groups, 60% for a derivation cohort and 40% for an internal validation cohort within the first three studies. And then they used two studies for external validation. We're kind of getting into the weeds on some of the, the methods here, but they were obviously looking for PEs on CTPA or a high probability VQ scan, or if venous thromboembolic disease was diagnosed during follow-up in a patient in whom PE was initially ruled out. Um, so there were 5,588 patients in the derivation cohort, 3,726 in the internal validation cohort, 1,548 in the first external validation cohort, and 1,669 in the second external validation cohort. So fairly large numbers. It should be noted that the prevalence in the first external validation cohort was about 12% prevalence of PE, whereas it was 21.5 in the second external validation cohort. So different, different levels of PE prevalence, which was again a critique against some of the other previous uh, methods to rule out PE. I'm not going to go through all, all the scores, but basically they derived um, you know, multiple variables with regression coefficients and assigned them points. And based on your, your point total, you, you know, are able to assess your clinical pretest probability and determine from there. So maybe I will just read them. I mean, age, chronic respiratory uh, disease, heart rate of less than 80, chest pain and acute dyspnea, male hormone or hormonal estrogenic treatment, personal history of VTE, syncope, immobility, pulse ox less than 95, calf pain, and PE is the most likely diagnosis. That's all what's in the four PEP scores uh, score and is again, sort of an amalgamation of previous scores. So, um, you know, basically they say it works <laughs> um, without, <laughs> without again, trying to get too much into the weeds on the stats. Um, you know, they had a, a uh, negative predictive value, or the false negative rates, excuse me, were 11 of 1,548 um, in the first validation cohort and 14 of 1,570 in the second external validation cohort. That's 0.71 and 0.89%, so very low, um, you know, false negative rates, which is what Is it low enough? <laughs> yeah, who knows, you know, I guess what's acceptable. Um, they had said, you know, less than 2% would be acceptable previously. Yeah. So they hit their mark, um, you know, and then they said when they compared themselves to standard strategies, um, which, you know, again, I didn't fully sort of go into what, what strategy they were comparing themselves to, but that they did, they did decrease the CTPA rate um, by 40, you know, 46 for 68. Um, so, you know, Negative minus 22% in um, the 
external validation cohort one, and then you know 32 versus 51 percent for for a difference of 19 percent in the second cohort. So um, you know they feel like they had very low false negative rates. They are decreasing the utilization of CTPAs, and um, you know I think to me I'm not totally sure this isn't just another score. You know they say we're combining all these scores and ours is better. You know, they say the main benefit of four PEPs is a single rule to guide diagnostic strategy resulting in a substantial reduction in testing, you know, especially imaging testing. So that, that sounds good, you know, but again, I'm not totally sure how it's different than the other ones other than it's just, you know, sort of advancing knowledge and, and practice. A few other things to mention, this was only in emergency department patients, so may not apply to the inpatient side, so it might be a moot point for us anyway. Um, there were, you know, lots of sort of tricky statistics to try and understand in this paper. Maybe not tricky, but, you know, they, they derived it, then they va internally validated it, then externally validated it. They used a lot of fancy stats words that I assume are sound methods, but um, you never know. And so it also has to, this was all retrospective and it, this must be validated prospectively before we really adopt it. So stay tuned, but um, seems like a useful clinical strategy for diagnosing PE in the, in the ED, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, it seems like, like you mentioned, they basically were just combining multiple approaches. And I feel like that, that approach is kind of what we sort of already do. I do think that a lot of people, you know, probably skip calculating a well score or a Geneva score, and, and they'll just go straight to the scan which I don't think is appropriate. I do think we should be thinking about what is their pretest probability and can we rule them out with a D-dimer because that's still a pretty good method. And, you know, we've talked about previous article on the podcast that, you know, that was looking at that D-dimer cutoff of a thousand for your low risk patients. And, you know, using that cutoff eliminates a lot of CT scans. And so, I, you know, I've used that using the age adjusted or 500 for intermediate risk that's pretty much the standard anyway. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know how much there's changes practiced that much, but it will be interesting to see it used prospectively to see if you get, you know, the same benefits. And really, you, you don't want to miss some, uh, you know, a PE, but I think the patients that are the highest risk, you're probably not even going to trust a negative D-dimer or whatever, you, you know, like if they're really quite ill, you're going to probably scan them anyway, and you're not going to miss it. It's more for those patients that otherwise seem fine. And someone just noticed that their heart rate was like, you know, 101 for like a split second. And now everyone's like, maybe it's a PE. <laughs> you're like, gosh, dang it. Can we rule this out? So uh, I had a patient just like uh, last week that was uh, on the ortho service and they consulted us, you know, because he had a syncopal episode with PT. And so, you know, of course, everyone, you know, well, he was quite orthostatic. And so that was kind of like the leading diagnosis. But it was like, all right, well, if he does this again, we're going to scan him. <laughs> and then he did do it again that same day. And he had two rapid responses called. So at that point, I was like, we're scanning him. And, uh, and he had a PE. <laughs> so I was like, okay, well, I guess I shouldn't be so, you know, begrudging about, about doing that. But anyway, his were subsegmental, though, so I don't know if they were actually oh. contributing. He's <laughs> now, so. <laughs> now he's going to bleed into that prosthetic hip and uh, oh, get infected. And... 
way. Uh, no, this, that just highlights it, it is a clinical conundrum, huh? I mean, what yeah. I often do is just get the CTPA and justify it by saying I want to look at the lungs too, which is a completely lame way of like, oh, lame. oh maybe there's a pneumonia, maybe there's some pulmonary edema, better just rule out PE also. But I really need like, pulmonary times contrast, so yeah. Yeah, put them through the, the you know, CT scanner of truth, but maybe that's uh, an indictment of my diagnostic skills. It definitely is, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what do you got next? Yeah, so, so two other random papers, um, the first of which is uh, anti-staphylococcal penicillin versus cefazolin. Are we going with cefazolin or cefazolin? What do you I'm say? A, I'm a cefazolin guy. Yeah, I say cefazolin, but anyway, um, cefazolin for the treatment of methicillin-susceptible staphylococcus aureus spinal epidural abscesses. So um, this was an open form of infectious diseases, and I actually couldn't, couldn't find the date. I didn't look that hard, but it's recent. <laughs> and so um, spinal epidural abscesses are increasing in incidence, and Staph aureus is the most commonly isolated pathogen. MSSA is very frequently isolated, and historically, anti-staphylococcal penicillins have been the treatment of choice. Uh, however, cefazolin is an alternative treatment, but has been considered second line based on concerns over beta-lactamases hydrolyzing cefazolin, uh, something called the cefazolin inoculum effect, causing higher rates of treatment failure with complicated deep-seated MSSA infections, and concerned over uh, weak meningeal diffusion and poor CNS penetration. So this is something that we that we encounter frequently is, is epidural abscesses and the antibiotic treatment of such. Um, anecdotally, I have seen cefazolin used at our institution quite a bit, but uh, this paper, you know, was saying that historically anti-staphylococcal penicillins, uh, specifically at our institution, mafcillin, and at their institution as well, would have been or, or continues to be maybe the treatment of choice. But again, anecdotally, I'm not sure that's true. I don't know what your experience has been. I think like in residency, I learned about that difference between mafcillin and, and cefazolin, and so and I feel like we were using a lot of nafcillin and I feel like all of my patients ended up with acute kidney injuries. And I don't know if, you know, that's, that's anecdotal, but like they always ended up blaming it on the nafcillin and switching to cefazolin. But I agree after residency, like as an attending, I feel like we're almost always using cefazolin almost exclusively, maybe because of the ease and the cost. I don't know. It seems like with the nafcillin, you got to do that little grenade pump thing. So it's continuous. Whereas cefazolin you can push, which is nice for the patients to not be hooked up to something. But anyway, th this is a yeah an interesting trial. Yeah, I mean, I think you basically have said what they said, <laughs> but um, you know, more more objective evidence for the use of of cefazolin, I think. So right, benefits of cefazolin include reduced dose frequency and costs. So they did a retrospective cohort study of seventy nine patients with MSSA spinal epidural abscesses. Um, 45 were treated with cefazolin versus 34 with, with ASPs, um, anti-staphylococcal penicillins. Baseline characteristics were reasonably matched. Um, there were more patients treated with ASPs that were admitted to the ICU. So I don't know if that speaks to, you know, folks are sicker, they get, if they're sicker, they get anti-staphylococcal penicillins. But, um, you know, the percentages of patients with multi-level spinal disease and bacteremia were similar. And essentially, there were no significant differences in outcomes between patients treated with cefazolin versus ASPs. The sample was small, um, but you know they looked at treatment failure, antibiotic course extension, mortality, or discontinuation of medications secondary to adverse events, and there were no significant differences. 
So again, small and retrospective, but I think this study adds weight to the growing body of evidence for cefazolin use in, in MSSA infections, even epidural abscesses, you know, quote unquote, deep-seated infections or, or complicated infections. And like we've said, anecdotally, that's what we've seen our ID colleagues prescribe. So I'm going to do whatever they tell me to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, cool. Um, and then my next paper was called Diagnostic Utility of a Ferritin to Procalcitonin Ratio to Differentiate Patients with COVID-19 from Those with Bacterial Pneumonia, a multi-center study. Uh, this was also in the Open Forum Infectious Diseases Journal. This paper caught my eye because I'm not sure how to use procalcitonin. Um, <laughs> and I'm not sure this really... Didn't you write a paper on procalcitonin? <laughs> <laughs> I did write a paper on procalcitonin, and that doesn't mean I know how to use it, and I continue to check it on most patients with any respiratory infections and try to inform my clinical practice, but that's not the way the listeners should use it, and this paper doesn't tell you how to use it, but anyway, labs and how to use them are a little bit interesting to me, so that's why I wanted to read this. Um, so... You know, the group looked at 242 COVID patients and 34 bacterial pneumonia patients and compared their ferritin to procalcitonin ratio, hypothesizing that the ratio would be higher in COVID patients than, than bacterial pneumonia patients, which was true. Uh, the median ratio was 4,037.5 versus 802. And they came up with a cutoff of 877, which resulted in a sensitivity of 85%, a specificity of 56%, a positive predictive value of 93.2%, and a likelihood ratio of 1.92. Um, 1.92. So uh, they also, you know, say that in a multivariable analysis, the ratio greater than 877 was associated with greater odds of identifying a COVID-19 case. However, for me, the a big however was that. COVID with concomitant bacterial pneumonia was excluded, which is, I think, where the actual clinical dilemma is. It's like trying to figure out if someone has COVID and bacterial pneumonia, not if someone has COVID or bacterial pneumonia. So again, you know, like, yes, ferritin's higher in COVID, Procal is lower in COVID, Procal is higher in bacterial pneumonia. That all we know, not sure this adds all that much, but, um, you know, again, wanted to just see sort of what the what the labs were doing in COVID and pneumonia, and maybe this informs that a little bit. But hopefully, you haven't la listened to the last two minutes and uh, <laughs> whatever. No, I, I mean, yeah, I, I found that article and and, and tweeted it out because I thought it was yeah, that's kind of interesting. Like, you know, we we love labs, we love yeah. things that feel objective, right? Because so then we don't have to use our brains so much. We we don't like uncertainty, and so I think that's the appeal of something like this. I think, you know, the, the likelihood ratios are not that high, so it's not like that awesome of a test, but I do think it's kind of just like a little interesting tidbit that, you know, would be would be fun to discuss on rounds, but it's probably not going to like change my practice that much. And, you know, for better or worse, COVID is still on the decline in, in our state. We're fortunate that things are getting better. We're having fewer COVID patients admitted to the hospital. And so, I don't even know if I'm going to be able to check this on somebody. I, and I guess in my, you know, if, if your COVID PCR is delayed 24 to 48 hours, maybe you get a ferritin a little bit, like a ferritin to Procal, a little bit quicker than a COVID test, which, you know, I don't know, ferritin takes about a day too. Procal is like an hour or two. Yeah, at our fast. 
Very but not fast. With a rapid COVID test, it's like, well, I have the diagnosis. Like, right. you know, I, I know they have COVID. Maybe they have a bacterial pneumonia, you know, plus or minus, which again, I think is the clinical conundrum. But yes, labs are interesting. We like data. That's why I read this paper. Yeah. Um, mostly read this paper. This <laughs> so, might be more useful too in the ICU because I feel like that is where patients are getting a lot more, you know, antibiotics on top of, like, most of the COVID patients I've admitted, I have, I, like, I've hardly ever started antibiotics on them unless, you know, they had, like, a dense lobar-looking pneumonia, um, and, and so I think in the ICU, it's a little tougher because they're sicker, and so they're thinking, well, what do we have to lose? We'll throw some ceftriaxone at them. Maybe it would be useful in that scenario. I don't know. Yeah. I'd have to ask Brian Locke. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. All right. Oh, there was uh, there were there was one other paper that I uh, didn't write anything down about, but that I thought was um, notable. It was from JAMA Internal Medicine, and I think you tweeted about this also. But deficits in advanced care planning for patients with decompensated cirrhosis at liver yeah. transplant centers. Yeah. Uh, topical after our last episode. Uh -huh. Basically, you know, um, we are not talking about goals of care early or aggressive enough with patients transferred. Uh, with cirrhosis to liver transplant centers was my brief takeaway on that and we yeah. had said that last week so we are you know, I, when I when I saw the article I was like oh wow I wish this had come out like a week earlier so we could have included it but yeah basically it was like a survey of transplant doctors and patients and their caretakers and one of the themes was that the caretakers and patients wish that they had talked more about goals of care and end-of-life care and not just can I get a transplant? Can I get a, because that's kind of what the, you know, the transplant team is thinking about. Is this patient a transplant candidate? And, and we get patients transferred to us for that evaluation. And, and when you have a patient that's sick, you really are doing them a disservice if you're not also talking about, well, what if you don't get a transplant? What, how, what do you want to do then? And I think, yeah, that's definitely something we can work on. All right. Well, I had one more ditty that I needed to share. Um, because we love thrombosis and um and so this was uh march 18th uh the inspiration randomized clinical trial was published in jama and this was looking at uh prophylactic anticoagulation uh, for covid patients so uh listeners may or may not be aware of the bizarre solo episode i did uh back in december um trying to like i was just trying to like review a lot of the the anticoagulation literature out there for COVID. There's so much, and most of it is observational, you know, retrospective stuff. And it wasn't bizarre, Stephen. Oh, okay. It, it was just, it was solo. So it was, it was it's atypical that way. It's very short. And so if you want like a really fast, you know, breakdown, you know, that's 17 minutes of straight thrombosis talk. But anyway, at that point, no one had really done like a randomized trial on any of this. People were just trying stuff and seeing what happened. And there was a lot of retrospective stuff getting published. And anyway, so it, um, but as everyone knows, I, I would hope by now, COVID-19 is definitely you know, associated with VTE. You know, for all hospitalized patients, the pooled incidence is probably about 17%, which is pretty high. And some estimates from systematic reviews found 28% of critically ill COVID patients developed VTE. So, you know, your ICU patients. And so this has led lots of people to try different approaches. You know, lots of people have advocated for intermediate dose low molecular weight heparin. 
um, including 50% of respondents to a survey from the International Society on Thrombosis and Hemostasis. So those are like thrombosis experts. That, Thrombologists. 50% of them recommended trying intermediate, right? And so, and then many people have also tried therapeutic anticoagulation, um, although the three largest randomized controlled trials, the REMAP, CAP, Active 4A, and ATTACK trials stopped enrolling critically ill patients back in December due to futility. And now there's a preprint paper posted online from those trials um, saying that therapeutic anticoagulation did not improve hospital survival or, or days free of organ support for critically ill COVID patients. So, so that's something everyone should know. I'm still waiting for the peer-reviewed official paper to come out on that. Um, but the same trials, REMAP-CAP, Active4A, and ATT&CK, they, they also have posted press releases that full-dose anticoagulation decreased the need for life support and improved outcomes in hospitalized COVID-19 uh, COVID patients not in the ICU. So our hospitalized COVID-19 patients may benefit from full-dose anticoagulation which is, you know, quite a bold claim, I think. Um, and, and as far as I know, there's not a preprint or published manuscript for that yet, so waiting for that as well. But what we do have is the INSPIRATION trial that was just published. So that one looked at intermediate dose anticoagulation, which was enoxaparin one milligram per kilogram daily versus standard dose enoxaparin 40 milligrams daily in patients admitted to the ICU with COVID. So this was only ICU patients. If the patient had severe renal dysfunction, they did use unfractionated heparin. The primary outcome they were looking at was a composite of acute VTE, arterial thrombosis, need for ECMO, or all-cause mortality. And then their secondary outcomes were all-cause mortality, VTE, and ventilator-free days. They had 562 patients that were included in randomized. And the primary outcome occurred in 45.7% of intermediate dose patients and 44.1% of standard dose. So not statistically significantly different, basically the same. All-cause mortality was 42% in the intermediate dose versus 40.9% in standard dose, also not different. And then the overall VTE rates were actually pretty low in both groups, 3.3% in the intermediate dose arm versus 3.5% in the standard dose arm. And I don't know how to square that with, you know, other studies that have shown even with DVT prophylaxis, standard prophylaxis, the rates were higher than 3.5%. But in this trial, that's what they were. This is why we do randomized controlled trials, I think. Um, but uh, major bleeding, you know, is also a concern if you're going to give a higher dose of anticoagulation. Um, that occurred in 2.5% of intermediate dose patients versus 1.4% in the standard dose, which did not meet criteria for non-inferiority. Um, so a standard dose is probably safer. Uh, they had one case of intracranial bleeding and two cases of fatal bleeding in the intermediate arm. Um, and then they had more clinically relevant non-major bleeding in the intermediate dose versus standard dose, 4.3% versus 1.7% and more severe thrombocytopenia in the intermediate dose arm. So basically all the outcomes were either were, you know, neutral or they favored just doing standard prophylaxis in these patients. So I think this is an important paper for, you know, all the speculation that there's been. Um, I'll be curious to see the, you know, the other papers that come out from the bigger trials, um, especially for hospitalized patients. But for now, I think I'm gonna stick with the standard dose prophylaxis. So I should either do standard or therapeutic. 
not intermediate. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, I guess that's what, yeah. That's the question, right? I mean, you, you also wonder too, like with the intermediate dose that they chose, they did one mig per kilogram in a one-time dose. You, you could do 0.5 migs per kilogram twice a day. That would also be considered intermediate dose. And you may not have the same amount of bleeding with that. You wouldn't have such highs. Yeah, you'd have lower peaks. So I don't know. That's what we do for some patients, like trauma patients. That's what they do, that kind of a dose. But anyway. And then can I just include one more stupid trial? Absolutely. Does a single dose of 200,000 units of vitamin D reduce hospital length of stay in COVID-19? What do you think? No! <laughs> it also does not reduce mortality, admission to the ICU, or need for mechanical ventilation. Gosh darn it. That, that vitamin D stock that I purchased has really not panned out. No, man. But interestingly, it did increase their vitamin D levels from an average of 21 to 44. <laughs> all, nice. all these vitamin D trials that do this, my big takeaway is always, okay, so it didn't improve the outcome they were looking at, but you can give a ginormous dose and increase their levels. And so kind of like we do with iron sucrose, like we give that to everyone, you know, everyone with low ferritin or whatever, low TSAT, we're, we're loading them up with iron sucrose while they're there. You know, the pharmacist asked me, like, do you want to start them on vitamin D? And I'm like, only if it's 200,000 units, because I just want to give them one dose and be done with it. <laughs> but no one's allowed me to do that yet. So I've told you, have I ever told you that story about one of the intermountain attendings that, me that messed with me about IV vitamin D when I was an intern? No, you uh, have <laughs> I, I'm not. I mean, the the very short version of the story is just that I worked really hard on discharging a patient, and she had the nurses page me and tell me that there was a critical vitamin D level that required IV repletion and that was gonna, you know, torpedo the discharge. And this <laughs> was after a particularly long and painful stretch at IMC that like sent me into, you know, basically <laughs> a, a super dark place. <laughs> <laughs> that's really uh it's really messed up who who was that are you allowed to say who it was we've got child and dog sneezes on the podcast oh, I um i'm happy to say yeah it was uh i'm actually i think she, it was megan o'hara i think uh -oh. she would appreciate the yeah, o'hara i could see her doing that yeah she has a all right gus is crying i gotta go okay well uh yeah i'm glad we made it through good luck with gus and uh Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We'll see you in a week or two. Bye.